September 24th, 2007, in Yangon, Myanmar. The milky sun burns through the smog and low cloud that hangs over the city. It's monsoon season, and the air is heavy with humidity and the threat of rainfall. Today, Yangon's bustling streets are filled with an unusual kind of crowd. Hundreds of Buddhist monks, clad in bright red and orange robes, stream through the city. They march barefoot with banners, megaphones and high spirits. This is the height of what will come to be called the Saffron Revolution, a nationwide movement for political change in Myanmar led by Buddhist monks. The movement, which began as a consumer protest against a sudden increase in fuel prices, has quickly grown to encompass demands for dramatic political reform. The Saffron Re- Revolution, in many ways, was the first very open manifestation of the extent of the changes that had happened in Myanmar. Trevor Wilson is a visiting fellow at the ANU Department of Political and Social Change and a former Australian ambassador to Myanmar between 2000 and 2003. As they march, the monks are joined by scores of ordinary civilians who greet them with both signs of reverence and shouts of solidarity. The Buddhist clergy is the largest and most established civilian institution in the country, and monks are highly respected in Myanmar society. Their participation in this protest movement is significant. Since 1962, Myanmar has been ruled by military elites who took power from the democratically elected civilian government in a coup d'etat. For the past 50-odd years, Myanmar has endured repression and isolationism, corruption and violence, economic mismanagement, and tight controls on any kind of civic engagement. But on this muggy day in September 2007, something is changing. These protesters, marching through the streets, number in their hundreds of thousands. It's the biggest political demonstration the country has seen since the so-called 8888 uprisings, a period of civil unrest launched by Burmese students against the military government in August 1988. That movement, led by students from Rangoon Institute of Technology and the Rangoon Arts and Sciences University, encompassed all levels and sections of society. Ethnic minorities, Buddhist monks, government employees, academics and teachers, hospital staff, even some former military personnel, all demonstrated in their tens of thousands. The scale of that movement shocked everybody, especially the authorities, and the response was swift and brutal. Merely a few weeks after the protests began, Myanmar experiences another coup, this time by the Orwellian-sounding State Law and Order Restoration Council. This new administration, led by General Salmang, has no tolerance for protesters. The 8888 demonstrations are promptly and brutally broken up by military troops, resulting in widespread arrests and extrajudicial killings. 3,000 civilians are thought to have died in the 8888 demonstrations across the country with a 1,000 dead in Yangon alone. So when the monks mobilised in 2007, almost two decades after the 8888 movement, they march with this legacy on their shoulders. There is no knowing how the military will respond. 
They understand the danger they're putting themselves through, but they deem the risk worth taking. By this stage, we're talking about the early 2000s, most Burmese were long accustomed to being very careful about their own security and their own welfare and not getting too close to the government if they were not government supporters, and, but of making sure that they were not going to be thrown into jail or worse. How did it come to this? The blossoming of civil society stretches back several decades, brought about by a very, very gradual loosening up of restrictions at the highest echelons of political power. By the time we get to 2007, civilians feel that the simple act of protesting, once out of the question, has become possible. There were lots of different little groups and organisations set up from 2000, from the year 2000 onwards, uh, small think tanks, associations, citizens' associations connected with the, the, the local monastery. So they, were, they had a religious character to them, but, but the things that were drawing them together were not religious. They weren't arguing about the text of the, of the, the, the Buddhist scriptures, for example. They were talking about consumer issues, public issues, political issues. So in a lot of different ways, little, small openings happened. In most countries, these would be no big deal. In a place like Australia or America or France or Germany, um, they were completely insignificant and trivial. But in a country as controlled as Myanmar, still under the military regime, this was really quite significant. Despite the hope that surrounded the Saffron Revolution, it eventually collapses, following a brutal military crackdown that echoes the horror of the 8888 backlash. It leads to thousands of arrests and hundreds of deaths. It will take another four years before the military government relaxes its authority and begins a process towards democratic transition. But the seeds of change have been sown. Mostly the authorities had a bit of an idea of what was going on. They weren't always able to predict and, and precisely identify in advance what was going to happen. So they were quite often taken by surprise. Uh, and, but generally, they dealt with these expressions of protest, if you like, that, that occurred, and they dealt with them in their traditional ways. I mean, they were very used to dragging people off to the local police station and interrogating them and, and uh, you know, using fairly fierce forms of uh, interrogation to, to get the information that they wanted. Um, but there was generally, there was also a much wider sense of feeling on the part of the populace that if they wanted to protest against something, it was now possible. During this turbulent period, the civilian protesters and the Buddhist monks will find themselves an important and unusual ally. DIY punk and folk musicians. Protest music flourished in Myanmar during the Saffron Revolution, providing a creative outlet for people to peacefully express their dissatisfaction with the military regime and their desire for political change. 
One of the founding bands in this movement is a punk group called the Rebel Riot, formed in the crucible of the 2007 protest movement and the brutal military crackdown that followed it. This band is still very active in the Yangon community space and has become a founding pillar of the city's alternative music scene. Their Facebook page emphasises their revolutionary character. Rebel Riot is a punk band from Yangon, Myanmar, formed in 2007 after the onset of the Saffron Revolution. During this time in Myanmar, many people were protesting against the oppression and corruption of the military regime. Rebel Riot at this time was made of six members playing small underground gigs. They wanted to use music as a way to speak about freedom and the errors of the current political system. Since the Rebel Riot formed in 2007, a host of other punk, folk and rock groups have followed, all led by young people with a desire for political change. Their activities have not ceased with the democratic transition. Quite the opposite, in fact. Before I wrote such folk songs or other modern music, I made their students anthems. Xin Lin is a student activist and a musician from Yangon. His band, the folk punk group Angry Folks, has been an outlet for his political frustrations and a means for him to engage Burmese youth with political protest. Actually, in Myanmar, it's like... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, the previous um, the uh, protest anthems or the students' union songs, but they are so old and, I mean, they were made since um, around 1936 and 1950s. So we have to, I think I have to make the new ones. I have to fulfill the gap. Zin became interested in protest music when he came across some documentaries online about the anti-Vietnam War movement in the United States in the 1960s. This was where he discovered both the music and the power of political activism. During the anti-Vietnam War period, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of documentaries about those um, uh, civic movements uh, around the 1960s, and such documentaries use a lot um, uh, folk song, especially the uh, American folk singers like uh, uh, Woody Gatherings and uh, Phil Ox. I found those songs through those documentaries and movies. It would be easy to assume that protest music in Myanmar is a new phenomenon, a mimicry of folk and punk traditions imported from the West. But it's not quite so simple. Protest music in Myanmar, just like protest music in any other country in the world, has always existed. It is influenced as much by Burmese musical traditions as it is by imported styles. Tangyat, for example, is a form of Burmese performance art that combines elements of slam poetry and satire with traditional instruments. It's music, but it's also political commentary. It's a light-hearted form of political expression that goes back centuries. Between 1974 and 2013, Tangyat performances were banned in Myanmar by the military government for reasons of so-called national security. Even after 2013, Tangyat troops were required to submit their lyrics to municipal committees for approval before they could perform them. So, like all things in Myanmar's turbulent history, protest music cannot truly be understood without the context of its military government and the many decades of authoritarian rule that Myanmar endured. 
Between 1962 and 1989, Western music and dancing were banned outright by the military junta because they were deemed to represent a corrupting influence on Burmese society. General Ne Win, who was renowned as a somewhat fanciful leader, reportedly had a particular personal dislike for modern pop music. During his reign, the importation of all Western musical instruments and records was strictly forbidden. Even after Ne Win was overthrown following the 8888 uprisings, the regime that replaced him maintained his concern over the potentially revolutionary impacts of rock and pop, and did its utmost to keep a lid on all musical activity. Live performances in particular were very rare. In 1989, for example, the few Western bands touring Myanmar that year were warned that any music they performed had to benefit the people of Myanmar. At the same time, the military enforced stringent censorship laws on the media more generally, aimed at preventing any kind of dissidence or anti-government activity. Up until 2004, you could still be thrown in jail for up to 20 years for owning a copy of a two-CD set titled The Lady, a compilation of songs by bands like Paul McCartney, Pearl Jam, U2, Eric Clapton and Sting that was dedicated to freeing Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader of the democratization movement, and the courageous people of Burma. These stringent creative controls meant that in Myanmar between 1962 until August 2012, when state censorship of music was finally abolished, basically anyone who made any kind of non-traditional music automatically became something of a rebel, whether they meant it that way or not. The mainstream is, you know, it's everywhere, I think. Um, the mainstream music is just about love and Yes, in Myanmar, most of the music um, just focus on love. <laughs> the military's efforts to quell all kinds of engagement with pop, punk and rock and roll essentially meant that to engage with alternative music, that is, any song that wasn't based in mainstream sugar-coated lyrics about love and loss or vacuous patriotism, became a political act. One of defiance. The people also demand music or other, you know, artworks to um, motivate or to, you know, raise up their voice. Nevertheless, musicians found ways of circumventing these tight controls, particularly after 1988. In 2002, Yangon City FM radio began broadcasting locally produced pop music. And two years after that, a music school was opened up in the same city, specialising in teaching Western styles. Slowly but surely, the music scene began to diversify, a process that mirrored the changes that were going on in the civil society space and the political sphere itself. By the time when I left, left from the Australian Embassy in 2003, there were a lot of people involved in different musical activities. You could go outside in the evening in, in Yangon, where we all, were all living, and you'd just listen and you'd hear music of some kind or other. Now, it might be from the temple. It might from, be from a, a, a hotel where they were having some kind of evening uh, event. Um, 
But but these the music was by Myanmar people, Myanmar singers, Myanmar bands, uh, often dancers and you know, a lot of other associated activity. Um, but they were they were homemade, homegrown. They were very indigenous and, and you know local. They weren't copied from anywhere. They weren't um, brought in from overseas or anything. They were really decidedly local in origin, and and they took off. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly how and exactly why the music scene started to grow in this way at the turn of the century given that the military administration had always considered tight control of the media to be an essential tool for cementing and maintaining their authority. Even after the democratic transition, a certain degree of government monitoring of the media remained in place. And yet... By 1995, changes were already starting to happen at the high decision-making levels in the in the basically in the military regime, but essentially it was in military intelligence, which was headed by General Kenyon, who was a lieutenant general, and he went on to become prime minister. But in the meantime, he had allowed, permitted, authorised and endorsed a lot of freeing up of public activity. Let's just call it public activity. Because it, they allowed organisations to register as civil society organisations. They allowed people to get involved in anti-government activity of a kind that they had not been able to do after 1988 when there was an uprising. And it, it allowed people to set up special interest groups, if you like to call them that, which were civil society, not military, not government controlled. An organisation might be set up and it could be about anything. It could be about music. It could be about writing. It could be a think tank. It could be about development issues, you know, social issues, economic development. Um, and they were. Many of these groups were set up. Um, they were not necessarily openly calling for the overthrow of the military regime or the overthrow of the government. Um, but they were a form of dissent. It wasn't long before the underground music scene began to reflect those changes going on at the highest levels of political those same stirrings that enabled the monks to march on the streets in 2007 allowed the punks to get loud. Today, Myanmar's punks and protesters are still active, but their mood and their agenda have changed with the times. While Myanmar society is much freer today than it was 10 or even five years ago, many challenges remain. Pro-democracy activists are frustrated with the slow pace of political reform, and in particular, the enduring influence that the military continues to have over Aung San Suu Kyi's civilian government. 
Though Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, won a supermajority in both houses of the Burmese parliament in the 2015 elections, their political power and their capacity to instigate real reform remains limited even today. The Myanmar military retained full control over three key ministries, and under the 2008 constitution, they're also allocated 25% of all seats in parliament, enough to essentially give them veto power to block any proposed legislation they deem challenging to their hegemony. This has enabled them to wage a brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing in Rakhine State against the Rohingya, one of the world's most persecuted ethnic minorities. Though the military's power is unquestionable, many feel that Ansung Suu Kyi herself has not done enough to prevent the atrocities in Rakhine State. In particular, she's largely been silent about the military's violence, and she's also failed to condemn rising currents of hyper-nationalistic rhetoric perpetrated by certain influential Buddhist monks that has drummed up jingoistic paranoia and anti-Rohingya fervor among Myanmar's Burma ethnic community. Zin, for one, is disillusioned. He's scathing about Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy and resents the quasi-mythical status that she continues to hold in many parts of Myanmar as the person who purportedly led the country out of military dictatorship and into the democratic future. I have no sympathy for your racist will and death. The bastards you support him, the killing innocent Not long ago, Zin released this song with his band Angry Folks. It contains explicit references to Unsung Suu Kyi and her ill-gotten reputation as a liberal and an activist for marginalized people. The worst problem is that people are still worshipping those, you know, the, the person, like, for example, Aung San Suu Kyi, and even the people who knows she's doing shit, but, you know, it's like, they're still worshipping her, maybe they still hope, put their hope on her, like, um, maybe she can do better, she's just hiding her agenda, or something like that, but, it's depress- depressive. I mean, I don't really trust on the ruling class, but one, the grassroots people, you know, uh, worshiping somebody is, I know, it's really, you know, it's really hard to change um, something we need to address the, those persons who are perpetrating, you know, the crime against humanity and, yeah, wearing, who are wearing their medals like Nobel Prize bets, committing violence against um, oppressed people. As for the rebel riot, they've also joined in the conversation. Their most recent release is a blistering track called Genocide that explicitly calls out the military operations currently going on against the Rohingya. The video that accompanies the song is a stream of black and white photographs documenting the atrocities currently ongoing in Rakhine State. To increase their reach, the band have even added in English subtitles to explain their Burmese lyrics to an international audience. Like all great punk anthems, this one is simple and to the point. 
According to the video, the lines simply translate to flames of ego filled with greed, violent killings of power-thirsty military pigs, a violent bloodbath, a f- genocide. No confused metaphors here. It seems significant to me that there's this cluster of young people in Myanmar who choose to agitate for social change completely outside formal political channels, like the National League for Democracy. The student movement, along with its musical overtones, is part of a bottom-up, grassroots-level engagement, something decidedly local in character, which resists being co-opted by broad-based movements like the National League for Democracy. When it comes to rallying people behind the idea of political change, music is perhaps the oldest and yet the simplest tool there is. Its timelessness is a testament to its power. It it doesn't cost the songwriter anything to write the song uh, or the poet to write the poem. Um, And uh, they... They can have a lasting lifetime. That's Dr. Mark Gregory. He's an academic who's done extensive research into protest music as a genre through the ages, collecting and archiving songs and poems from various union and workers' movements around the world. Protest music, Mark says, is a universal response to injustice that's deeply historical. Well, it goes back a long way, really, when you think of it. Uh, There's not uh, any country in the world which doesn't have music that stretches back into the past, uh, you know, for for generations. And there is no uh, evidence of any land which doesn't have music. so it's a universal phenomenon, I think, and in every different language that we have. Telling you with the uh, 100 pages long paper, I mean, explaining a lot of data about, you know, some issues. It's so boring, and especially the political issues that who are non-political people. I mean, it's so boring for the common people to get, to get, their attention, you know, but with the music, it's like, you know, they get some strange feeling. People are often fascinated by other people's music and there's such a variety of that music, you know, from um, every country in the world. So people cling on to that music uh, if it um, supports their own thinking about the way things are this is my reason making music is like to to get attention and to get you know uh, sympathy of the other people who are not you know relating or who are not suffering their specific issues for example like um the, uh, there's a worker strike i'm demanding the minimum wage in industrial zones that nobody cares about that and I want those people cares about those workers or something like that you know I mean I want people um, especially in Myanmar to get attention those specific um, the uh, right-based movements and other 
you know what I mean? <laughs> Mostly, um, I wrote song to, you know, focusing on specific issues and specific topics to tell. To quote Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, don't hate the media, become the media. Now, that's pretty punk rock. <laughs>